And welcome in to this week's episode of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover with you from South Carolina. We've got Kyle Crooks from Gainesville, Florida, and then from St. Augustine, Florida. In the center of the screen, we have Chip Carey. And Chip, it's great to see you. How's everything going? Doing great. Ready for baseball to start, as I know you guys are as well. We certainly are, and uh, Chip, this is not the first time you and I have met. If we go back to Harry Carey's Italian Steakhouse in the early 2000s, let's see if I can get it up there. Yeah, there you go. Just embarrassing you right off the start. I like it, yeah. Well, (laughs) time... A lot less gray hair, a lot, a lot fewer lines on the face for both of us. Absolutely. And uh, I mentioned it was at Harry Carey's 10 Steakhouse. I grew up a big Chicago Cubs fan, and my family would always make a point to go to Harry Carey's. My parents met him there back in the 80s, and I know you go back there a lot as well. i got to ask, first thing, what is your go-to meal when you go to Harry Carey's? Uh, pretty much everything. Uh, you know, I used to eat a lot of steak. I don't do that much anymore. I try to stay away from the pasta. I like the white fish. I like the chicken Vesuvio. All that stuff is great. Vesuvio's our go-to chicken. Vesuvio. Yeah, it's awesome. It's really good. It's really good. I can use some of that now. Yeah. So, Chip, how much of a relief was it when you finally realized there is going to be some baseball this year? And what's the wait been like for you uh, during this quarantine time? Uh, well, awful. Uh, quite obviously, uh, my heart goes out to all the guys in the minor leagues who aren't going to have a season. So, uh, we were uh, all very, very worried. Quite obviously, about there being no major league season with coronavirus and all of that. Uh, look, we understand where our game is and where its place is in the rank of importance in things that are going on in America. And baseball is certainly not at the top of that list when you consider so many people have have passed away from this virus. Uh, but that said, I think baseball, like the NBA, I love what Adam Silver said. Uh, we have a responsibility to play games and take people's minds off of all that's going on around the world and give people something to root for and get behind. And I think that was the hope that all of us who work in this sport were clinging for. Uh, look, we're independent contractors, a lot of us, and the thought of not getting a paycheck for 18 months uh, is really, really hard. Uh, we don't live extravagantly, but we do re- we do uh, require baseball uh, to pay the bills, and uh, that was uh, that was a real daunting thing. And so, uh, knowing there's a possibility, and I still say it's a possibility of 60 games, is great. We're excited about that. I think players are starting to report today around the major leagues, and we should get started here in about three weeks, assuming that there's no uh, cataclysmic outbreak amongst the uh, the professional athletes. Uh, but having said that, look, uh, until game number 60 is in the books and we get to the playoffs, I think all of us are going to be operating under a hope for the best, uh, prepare for the worst scenario. And that's really the only way we can do it. And for those of us who are used to the certainty of a schedule and used, used to working with the circadian rhythm of a Major League Baseball season and Major League Baseball calendar, it's really an uncomfortable and, and uh, I guess, uh, shall we say, uncomfortable and terrifying time. But we all hope that baseball will go off uh, without a hitch and that uh, our sport can be part of the discussion of rallying behind our communities and having something else to root for besides this uh, invisible enemy we're all fighting right now. From a broadcasting standpoint, has it been detailed to you and how it's going to work in the 60-game season? I know for home games, you'll probably be in the ballpark. For road games, you'll be in a remote studio or your house. Has it, I'm sure it's been thought out and how this is all going to work from a broadcasting standpoint. Well, I'd like to think so. Uh, at this point, no, I've not gotten any details. Uh, I do know that we're not going to be traveling. Uh, I think that's been pretty been made pretty apparent. I don't think they want the, the media uh, gathering in the ballparks or on the planes, and they're going to try to ins- uh, insulate the players as best as they can. And to that point, look, uh, there's a lot of risk out there in everything we do. Uh, the players are going to be uh, as insulated, as secure, and as safe as anybody can possibly be with the testing that they're going to undergo. Uh, and so with their young immune systems and their strength, strength and all of that, which makes them athletic in the first place. I'm very confident that guys who catch it, and they will, 
are, in general terms, probably going to be just fine. That's the good news. Uh, as far as us and uh, the broadcast people are concerned, you're right. We'll probably be doing all the games from our booth in Atlanta, home games and road games alike. But how that's going to look, uh, what kind of monitors and feeds and views we're going to have, we don't know. And in fairness to Major League Baseball, the teams and the broadcast outlets, uh, this is so fluid and it seemingly changes every day that I don't think they really have their hands fully wrapped around it yet. In fact, we just got the schedule the other day. We don't even know where the Braves are playing on opening day <laughs> at this point. We're three weeks out. So uh, in fairness, uh, look, we'd all like to know information yesterday. But in fairness to everybody, there's just so much going on right now that uh, uh, worrying about how the broadcasts are going to look and how many monitors they have in the booth is probably the least of their concerns and understandably so. Chip, are you excited to see the designated hitter on a daily basis for the first time since your Seattle Mariners days? Uh, well, considering how some National League pitchers hit, yeah, I guess I'd have to say <laughs> I would be. Um, no, I mean, I'm, a tra- I'm a traditionalist, but look, this is a year that you don't stand on that mountain and wave that flag. Uh, we're going to have a 60-game season. We're going to have runners at second and extra innings. We're going to have bigger rosters. Uh, we're going to have substitution rules. We're going to have the DH spot, obviously. And I think, uh, why not try these things out in real time with Major League players and in Major League ballparks? Let's see what works instead of using the minor leagues only as the uh, the proving ground for this. Uh, look, I love the strategy of the National League game. I love the double switches. I love thinking about how managers deploy their pinch hitters and the like. Uh, but I think that, uh, again, uh, pitchers don't really, generally speaking, hit well at all. So let's get another offensive player into the game, which should make the game more exciting. A friend of mine, Kevin Kernan, uh, who used to write for the New York Post, had an amazing stat uh, about a week and a half, two weeks ago. Last year, there were 58,000 plate appearances in Major League Baseball where the ball was not put in play. 58,000 walk, strikeout, hit by pitch. Uh, that's got to change. Uh, the the three-outcome effect of our sport has really, I think, uh, devalued the interest in it among younger people because there's not enough action in the game. And if the DH is something that's going to foster more of that and create more offensive excitement and keep some of the older stars in the game for another year or two. Well, good for them and good for the game because ultimately that's what we're trying to do is create excitement, not walk, uh, not look and say, well, here's the number nine hitter. He's going to strike out uh, with two outs. What can kind of you do? That's not really strategy. So I think it'll change the way the game is played quite obviously. It's certainly going to change the rosters and it's going to give uh, the Players Association another big bargaining chip for the next labor agreement, which is coming up, as you know. Well, in the first part of our show, we always like to detail each broadcaster's journey to wherever they are in their careers. Then the second part, I like to go over some kind of play-by-play theory and really preparation process. So for you, I think a lot of people look at your last name and just think, okay, Harry was a broadcaster, Skip was a broadcaster, Chip's going to be a broadcaster. But for you, what was really the spark of your interest and when you started uh, realizing this could be a career? When I couldn't hit a curveball in Little League. <laughs> um, uh, no, no, I mean, I, my parents were divorced. My grandparents were divorced. I didn't see either one of my parents or my grandparents uh, very much growing up. So there's this perception that uh, I was born with a silver microphone and they put it in the, in the crib next to me and we'd sit around family dinners and talk about broadcast theory and stuff. That never happened. I didn't know them until I was really adult. Um, so that that's a big misnomer that very few people have ever really talked about. And I've talked about it a lot in recent times with uh, so much downtime. Uh, but for me, the, the moment that I knew I wanted to do it, I was sitting in the car with my dad. I was doing an internship at TBS, working in the graphics department for the Braves broadcasts. And my dad was upstairs doing the game for uh, WSB Radio. And uh, the game ends. The Braves won it. Uh, Bob Watson hit a pinch hit grand slam home run off Steve Howe at Old Fulton County Stadium. I think it was 83. It might have been my senior year out of high school. And you couldn't get out of the ballpark parking lot for uh, 45 minutes to an hour because 
anybody that's been to Turner Field in Atlanta knows how congested that was. So after the game, I went upstairs to the press room, and there's my dad sitting at the table with Ernie Johnson and Pete Van Weren and Vin Scully and Ross Porter and Jaime Harine. And my dad said, get a Diet Coke or a Coke or whatever and sit down and shut up and just listen. And they talked about the game for an hour. And they're drinking beers and telling stories and all that stuff. And dad said, all right, finally, it's time to go. Well, we get in the car. And I'll never forget, it was a 1983 four-door Volvo with a four-speed stick shift. And he turns on the radio. Just as we exit the parking lot, the uh, station announcer, WSB, came on the air and said, it's midnight Atlanta, 72 degrees. Last night, the Braves beat the Dodgers, 7-6. Bob Watson with the late-inning heroics here, Skip Carey's call. And they've played his radio call. And as you guys know, there's a big difference between a TV call and a radio call. But my dad nailed it. And the proverbial hair on the back of your neck stands up. And I said, wow. And he said, what? I said, that was awesome. He said, what do you mean? He said, I said, I'd like to do that someday. And that was the first time I'd ever said anything of the kind to my dad. Uh, because, again, I was still sort of getting to know him, as it were. And uh, he didn't say another word for the drive home, which is another 30 minutes or so. We got to the house. He poured himself a drink, got me another a glass of water and some food and said, were you serious about what you said in the car ride? And I said, absolutely. He said, Great. We start tomorrow. And that's how it started for me. Uh, he made a call to Bob Wessler at TBS. Uh, he arranged me to go in an interview for an internship. It's pretty much a foregone conclusion, obviously. But I still started at the ground floor, coiling cables, running camera, carrying tripods. I was a gopher, lowest rung on the totem pole. But it taught me a very valuable lesson that um, the guys that are in front of the camera get all the headlines, but it's the guys and women behind the scenes that make that possible. And it was a really rewarding experience to see how hard and how anonymously these people work and the great responsibility that those of us who were on air have to represent their great talents and their great work to the best of our abilities. Uh, because we're only as good as the camera people or the audio people or the tape people behind us. And we've been blessed in Atlanta for a long time to have some really, really great people. So that was my story, just a, a radio call cemented i think the knowledge that that's what i wanted to do i knew i couldn't play baseball and the next best thing was to be around it every day and talk about it and here i am as you're starting out what is some of the advice that your father is is giving you in in those first few years as you get into it professionally yeah for for me i think they knew how hard it was in this regard uh you, you mentioned the last name yeah it's a blessing it's it's opened a lot of doors there's instant recognition and all of that but the double standard that exists with regards to that is there's an obvious expectation uh, when you're 22, 23 years old and you're stepping into the major leagues and doing a major league broadcast. I wasn't as polished as my dad or my grandfather were. And that's who people knew in our family. Hell, Harry was in the Hall of Fame by the time I started. Uh, my dad was seven, eight years into his Braves broadcasting career after coming to Atlanta in 68 to do the Hawks. So he'd been there 15, 16 years. He was established in the market. Um, their advice that they gave me was, look, don't be a cheap facsimile of someone else. Be yourself. I'm sure you guys have, you can go online and probably listen. Hell, 20, 30 years ago, there were probably 10,000 broadcast tapes of kids that work on the West Coast who try to sound exactly like Vin Scully or Ross Porter. Why would you do that? There's only one Shakespeare, and that's Vin Scully. Why not go out and be the best you you can be? When I went to Chicago to work for the Cubs, people were asking me, were you going to say, holy cow, are you going to sing the seventh inning stretch? And I said, I'll do the latter if they ask me, but hell no, I'm not saying, holy cow, that was Harry's shtick. Uh, the surest way to kill yourself was to try to be him. So the advice, the best advice they gave me was, look, tell the truth, be honest, but be yourself. It's a personality-driven business, and if you try to be something you're not, the audience will see right through it, and that's the quickest way to get exiled out of town. 
So how tough was that to, to find your own voice, be your own person in the booth? Uh, I'm sure you did a lot of analyzing of, of games that you did, listening back to games that you did to, to vocally and presentation wise. Just just be yourself and be different. It's easy, easier said than done, I guess. And it was easier then than it is now for you guys. I think it's much more difficult for guys of your age because of social media, because of Twitter and Facebook. And I'm not I'm not blasting those platforms in any way, shape or form. But the instantaneous critiques you get, I don't think allow you or the audience really time to reflect on what you actually said or what you were trying to do. And as a result, the risk taking that people might have in our business disappears because nobody wants to be lambasted out in social media or in cyberspace forever. Look, I've made plenty of mistakes. I've been fired before uh, because I've goofed up a call or two on the air. I'm not proud of that, but I learned from it. Uh, and I think in today's environment, we don't allow young people, no matter their vocation, the opportunity to learn on the job. Um, so I was fortunate. I was able to uh, start in Orlando doing basketball games at 24 in the NBA. I didn't know anything about pro basketball. Uh, I, I was allowed to grow. I mean, look, I, the team won 15 games that year and I was worse than the team. Uh, if there had been Twitter or Facebook around, I probably wouldn't have survived that year or been brought back. I mean, I was on a one—I was on a one-year contract the entire time I was in Orlando, until later on. Uh, but I was—I was fortunate. Pat Williams and the staff there—they allowed me to grow because our city was growing. Our city was learning about the NBA and learning about pro basketball on the fly. And I guess I was a good conduit for that. And to your point about watching games and all that stuff, I don't really do that. I. Um, I just did the games and I sort of felt what worked and what didn't. And people that I worked with were obviously very willing to offer constructive criticism to say, hey, that was a good idea. Why did you do that? Or that didn't work. What was your thinking? And that's how you learn through the creative process. It's almost like doing a chemistry experiment in real time. You, you just do it and, and it either feels right or it doesn't. And generally speaking, if you have a good head on your shoulders, you'll instinctively know uh, what works and what doesn't. Chip, I feel like you've been really blessed with some good timing a lot of times in your career, especially you talked about the magic of the rough days at first, but then they eventually have a winner and it's a force that really takes over the NBA for a little bit. But also with the Atlanta Braves, I believe you started in 1991 with the Braves here. They went from worst to first. We're in the World Series. Same thing can be said for 92. Just how much was that fun a time? And especially with your dad as well, getting after all those bad teams he announced for so long in Atlanta to finally have a winner. What was it like to see that up close? It was great. I'm still waiting for them to thank me for bringing them all the good luck. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, as you guys know, uh, timing is everything. Uh, in Chicago, when I got to the Cubs, they were awful in 97. They came out of nowhere in 98 and were good. And when you're in your first year in a new city and you're a new voice for a team, there's nothing better than uh, having a good team because that takes all the pressure off of you. You just sort of ride that crest. Uh, that was certainly true in Atlanta. I was working at uh, Old Fox Sports South with Ernie Johnson. I was doing 35 or 40 games, did some radio, filled in for my dad. And that was kind of a, uh, it wasn't kind of, it was a great year because Smoltz and Steve Avery and Tom Glavin and Jeff Blauser and Mark Lemke and Greg Olson, all of those guys were about my age and they were playing and I was broadcasting. And so we, we sort of developed a really cool bond. We kind of grew up together in the major leagues. And that I think was the basis for Tom Glavin's and my a very good professional relationship and friendship. Same with Jeff Rancourt. Um, you know, it was a, a magical, magical time for all of them because you're right, Dad, Pete, and Ernie, they'd been there a long time. They had the, the great teams in the 1980s with Joe Torre that finished first, second, and second in the old National League West. And then to finally break through again in 91 uh, was A, unexpected, B, exhilarating for everybody, and C, for the guys that had been there a long time, 
very, very rewarding because, as you said, it's a hell of a lot more fun covering a team that wins 97 games than a team that loses 97. And we just rode the crest of the wave. And uh, unfortunately, Game 7 didn't go the Braves' way, but it started the, uh, the great parade of 14 straight championships. Certainly did, and the Braves have such great broadcasting tradition in part because of your dad, but as well as Ernie Johnson's senior, Pete Van Weeren. Uh, what you really learn from those guys in those years, as well as some other broadcasters around the major leagues who had made you, known you before, but once you were part of the club, how do they help you out? Yeah, uh, well, first, uh, Ernie Johnson is the reason that the Braves baseball is broadcast the way that it is. Uh, with all due respect to my dad and Pete, uh, none of this would have started without Ernie Johnson and his vision and his, uh, shall we say, stewardship and, and uh, patronage. Uh, my dad uh, tells, told the story all the time. One of his first broadcasts with the Braves in 1976. Uh, I don't know where it was. I can't remember that part. But uh, we'd come on the air. They'd do their open. They'd sit down. The number two guy in the booth would welcome everybody back, do the lineup, set the umpires, tell the weather, all that stuff. And then right before first pitch, would send it over to, in this case, Ernie Johnson, who would start the game on play-by-play. So dad finishes up the lineups. Joe West has the lineup card, throws a, a, a Steve Bedrosian, ready to go with his first pitch. And here with the play-by-play story, the voice of the Braves, Ernie Johnson. And Ernie says, thank you, Skip. Does the half inning. It ends. Ernie takes off his headset and taps my dad on the shoulder and said, hey, Skip, do me a favor. And dad's like, what? What do you need, Ernie? He said, please don't refer to me as the voice of the Braves. We're all the voices of the Braves. And for my dad, that was a wonderful seminal moment because you all want to be accepted. You want to fit in. You want to not step on anybody's toes. And the point of that was that no matter who has been in that booth, nobody's the number one announcer. I am not the voice of the Braves. We are all voices of the Braves. And everybody is first among equals in that booth. And we all share each other's uh, same job responsibilities, same love for the team, same love for the broadcast, same care for our fellow employees, and ultimately try to serve the fans exactly the same way. So that was the first lesson. Uh, Pete Van Weeren taught me more about preparation uh, than anybody. Uh, Pete would take copious notes. He was a master of routine. Every single day, Pete went through the same routine to get to the ballpark. He got to the ballpark at 2.30, 3 o'clock every day, went down and saw Bobby Cox, talked to the other broadcasters, got his stack of press notes, had them folded the same way, uh, had his stack of books uh, perched to the side, both rule books back then, the red book for the Na- American League, green book for the National League, rules, uh, rosters, media guides. I mean, he had a, a stack of notes this high on the desk, and he'd rest his arm and do the game that way. Pete was left-handed, I think. Yeah, Pete was left-handed. And he broadcast the game and, and scored the game in pen. I don't think I ever saw Pete have to uh, use whiteout to fix a scorecard, unless – there was a lineup change 10 minutes before the game started. He'd be furiously scribbling, and it just it just threw him into a tizzy because he was so routine-oriented. But they called Pete the professor because he had an encyclopedic knowledge of what was going on in the game with the team, the rules, the statistics. And he just he didn't care about being famous. He cared about being good, about being right. And um, he, he just had an unwavering sense of obligation to uh, be as prepared as he possibly could to deliver that uh, information to the fans. With my dad, uh, look, I'm biased. I think all three of those guys should be in the Hall of Fame. My dad was kind of the Falstaffian, uh, class clown, Eddie Haskell type guy, but very, very serious uh, about the game. Uh, was very passionate about stuff that he believed. Um, he did not uh, suffer fools lightly. He did not uh care is maybe the wrong word but he wasn't concerned about telling it like it was if a player was playing bad or behaved poorly he said so 
I think that he would be very difficult to hire today, just like my grandfather, too outspoken, too honest uh, in the business. But uh, in my opinion, when the ball was in play, when a big moment was about to take place, nobody could do it as well as my dad. He just had a sense of how to capture excitement on TV and on radio. And uh, he knew how to use the crowd and his voice as a pair of instruments that augmented the broadcast. And, um, um, you know, those were all three things that were really, really important to my development. I would say to anybody's development, be accurate, be fair, be ready for the big call, expect the unexpected and inform and entertain. And I think that trio did it as well as anybody in baseball history. How much do you think the baseball broadcaster has changed over the years? Because you wonder if if Red Barber applies for a job now, you wonder if he does get hired because it's just such a a different style, the the Mel Allens back in the day. How much do you think the position has just changed in its overall presentation on the air? I think that's exactly right. Uh, You know, before television, it was radio and radio was a storytelling game. Red Barber would talk, well, I was having lunch with uh, uh, Rube Waddell the other day. And he told me about this and this. And that brings me back to Dizzy Dean and the Wabash Cannonball. I mean, you you would tell stories and intertwine those great historic figures in baseball in your broadcast to try to educate the fans and keep them connected to the past. An example of how it changed years ago was David Hill, who ran Fox Sports when they began covering Major League Baseball, had his famous no dead guys rule. And David Hill was this great, gregarious Australian man. Uh, super, super influential who said to us all, you know, we're living in life sandbox. You know, let's enjoy being in sports because we don't have to go dig ditches for a living. We're in the sandbox, play with the toys and have a good time. But he said of baseball, I don't want to hear about dead guys. Young fans don't know who Ty Cobb is or Babe Ruth is. And if you're going to talk about them, try to have video of them so that we can bring them to life. In theory, that's a great idea. But in practice, it's impossible because you don't know when that subject's going to come up in an instant during a broadcast. And so the no dead guys rule was sort of an idea that, okay, we're getting away from storytelling. Uh, I have been told that the position of a broadcaster, we are the audio producer of the telecast. Uh, On television, you have so many promotional drop-ins, you have so many sponsored elements that you have to read that the ability to tell stories is severely limited. You don't really get a chance to do that. So it's really two different mediums. Radio, you have uh, a blank canvas verbally to work with each and every day. You can paint whatever picture you want. And if a player is a step slit or a ground ball, you can, oh, it's just out of reach of Dansby Swanson. On TV, if he gets a bad jump because he's out of position, you can't really fake that. You can say, he got a bad jump, right? Two different, two different uh, perspectives on the same kind of play. Um, but more and more today, I sense that the role of the play-by-play guy in baseball is traffic, uh, traffic cop. Uh, I truly believe that the star of the broadcast should be the analyst because he played. Uh, people want to hear about Jeff Francoeur, Tom Glavin, or Joe Simpson's stories about what it was like to face different guys and what the situations are. And the really good ones seize the microphone and aren't afraid to offer their opinions and be wrong. Uh, or right for that matter. But our job is to really keep the broadcast moving. Uh, We're conductors in a train, but we are not the primary storytellers. It's the players nowadays on the TV side, which is very, very different than it was 30, 40 years ago. 
let's move ahead a little bit in your career as well, going to the Chicago Cubs. And, and what kind of pressure did you feel when you were going there? At first, you were going to work with your grandfather. Unfortunately, he passes away before the start of the 98 season. But also the thought of the memories that could have been had because you didn't know Harry that well in your younger life. And, and the strengthening of that relationship that could have been there, that doesn't happen. But uh, there's also that inherent pressure of stepping into a very big job. Yeah, uh, like I said before, I think people didn't really know what to expect. Was I going to try to copy Harry? Was I going to be myself? Who was this guy? He's a 32-year-old kid from Florida who's never been in Chicago. He grew up a Cardinals fan. He's worked for the Braves. What the hell does he know about baseball or Cubs baseball? <laughs> Which were all certainly, uh, you know, certainly valid uh, questions that people had. But yeah, there was a lot of pressure. Uh, my dad later said that there were probably two people, people in the world who could have done what happened in 1998. That was him or me. Um, and luckily for me, uh, I did not do it by myself. Uh, I had a great partner in Steve Stone who went out of his way to uh, t take me under his uh, wing and, and protect me and teach me the ropes of Chicago. Look, it's a big city. It is a big, tough city. Uh, you have uh, provincial rivalries, White Sox and Cubs, and they hate each other. And you have, uh, you know, Wrigley Field and, and uh, then Comiskey Park. Um, I had no knowledge of what that was like. I was just coming into a city to, to do a baseball game. And my grandfather, for all of his popularity and all of his success, uh, also had quite a few people he rankled and rubbed the wrong way in Chicago. And they were more than happy to try to take that out on me, um, fairly or unfairly. Uh, but that said, um, you know, pressure, I think it, it stopped in, after Kerry Wood's 20 strikeout game. I think that sort of was the calling card for me and Steve Stone as a partnership and for our crew. Uh, it was a nationally broadcast game on WGN, and it sort of, uh, I think, validated that I personally could step up to the big moment, that I could set up Steve to talk about what was happening, that I was truly a Cub fan, that I was truly all in on what was happening there, that I wasn't some carpetbagger. And I think uh, people came to respect the fact that, yeah, I've got the last name, but I'm trying to do it my way. And there were some bumps along the road. There's no question about that. But uh, a lot of people, John McDonough, who was then uh, the uh, uh, director of marketing with the team, Andy McPhail, Ed Lynch, Jim Riggleman, his players for the most part, uh, our broadcast crew, Arnie Harris, um, uh, Steve Stone, they, uh, they, were, they were wonderful partners in this. And they really helped me along to uh, sort of say, look, kid, just you're doing a great job. Just do your thing. And they gave me the confidence to do that. Yeah, I wanted to talk about Arnie Harris, and he was such a, you know, he was really the only producer-director that was known nationwide because of first of your grandfather talking about him a lot, but then WGN did a lot of cool things to kind of share his story, bring out his personality a little bit. Uh, just for you, what were some of the biggest lessons you picked up from Arnie? Uh, you know, he said any advertising is good advertising. You know, obviously when you're starting in the new market, you know, there'd be letters to the editor, somebody'd rip you, and you'd take it personally because you're, you're young and you're just trying to find your way. Well, how can anybody be mean to me. I'm the nicest person in the world. You know what I'm saying? Um, so he just said, look, kid, any advertising is good advertising. Don't worry about it. He said, Harry got ripped. Jack Brickhouse got ripped. They all get ripped. It's part of being in Chicago, tough city and the like. Um, he, he taught me about having fun. Uh, he taught me about it's okay to uh, poke fun at yourself. Uh, Arnie was a uh, a diminutive Jewish man who wore the world's worst toupee. He loved it when we'd pick on him. Uh, he ate junk food and crap and loved to gamble on the horses, but was um, all in, was a walking, talking encyclopedia of Cubs history. 
Um, I was with Arnie the day he died. Uh, I caught him on the way down when he had his heart attack in Chicago. And, uh, you know, a big part of me uh, died with him. Uh, he, he, in many ways, was the last great connection to my grandfather because they were such kindred spirits in the way that they approached baseball. Arnie always wore white shoes and white pants. Didn't matter the time of year. Didn't matter the season. He always went and bet on the, the ponies at the off-track batting, off-track betting place before the, the Cubs would have a game uh, in, in, on the road. And uh, he always loved to eat a cheeseburger and a, and a Diet Coke during the game. And he always made it fun. And uh, uh, he was such an instrumental part of those broadcasts and, and influenced so many people. Mark Brady, Pete Toma, myself. Steve Stone, for crying out loud, uh, not a day goes by when I think about the Cubs and I don't think about Arnie Harris and how much we miss him. Again, he was so rare for a long time in the fact that he was not only directing, you know, calling out every shot that you see, but also being the producer, talking uh, to you and Steve Stone. Just how much did you hear in your ear from him during a game? It was it different um, than other producers and directors? No, no, no. He did both. I mean, the director calls the camera shots, the producer calls for replays. So, he had a system. And the, the great thing about being on a broadcast team is that if you work together long enough, you figure out what each person's system is. So whoever the TD was, it was actually pushing the button to go to a camera would know what Arnie wanted to do almost before Arnie had to say it. So it became a seamless melding of the minds to bring together the broadcast. Um, we, you know, Arnie would talk to us a lot because we'd joke about something. We'd have our inside jokes or funny things that we'd say on the air that he knew exactly what we were talking about. And he'd hit the talk back button and laugh and kid around. Uh, but, you know, Arnie just he knew the game. And I think that's um, I, I think that's something else is so very important to whether you're in front of the camera or behind it. Uh, you know, the game. Arnie knew what was going to happen. Arnie knew how to cover the game from a video uh, perspective because he knew how the cutoff throws were going to work. He knew where the umpire was going to be positioned for a play at the plate. He knew which camera angle he needed for a bang-bang play at first or a runner at second base. And, uh, you know, I don't want to demean anybody's work ethic or talent, but we've really been lucky in Atlanta having producers who know the game. Uh, Glenn Diamond, another great one, kind of like Arnie Harris, Gretchen Caney, who's uh, taking over this year, knows the game. And when the producer knows the game and we can talk in baseball terms to someone doing TV – that makes our job a lot easier because we can communicate what we want to see and talk about. And it makes their job easier because we're speaking the same language. They're not talking TV while we're talking baseball or vice versa. So, yeah, all of that, extremely, extremely important. And the last question about Arnie, you mentioned it a moment ago, uh, you were with him on the night he passed away. And then less than 24 hours later, the Cubs play their final game of the year. And I know for me being in Tennessee with my family, that's the first time we learned uh, what had happened. It's just how draining, how tough of a broadcast was it for you that day, knowing your friendship with him, knowing what he had meant to you. But you guys did a wonderful job paying tribute all throughout that final Cubs game of the year. One of the worst days of my life. Uh, we had a standing bet the last Saturday before the end of the regular season. Arnie and I would go to dinner someplace, and we're going to uh, not Harry Carey's Steakhouse this particular time. Um, he, uh, we were going to meet at 8 o'clock. He had to stop at his bookie uh, because he put college football bets down, and he had to collect his winnings. So he pulls up, and the bar is packed. I'm drinking a Bud Light. He drinks a Diet Coke, and it was a weird day that day at the ballpark. We had Julian Tavares pitching for the Cubs. Sammy Sosa hit an inside-the-park home run, which – was weird in and of itself. Julian Tavares pitched, I think, five or six no-hit innings before he ran out of gas and had to come out of the game. And Arnie said, can you believe that ding-dong Julian Tavares almost threw a no-hitter? And he took a sip of his Diet Coke, and he seized up and died. Had a heart attack. I caught him on the way down. 
um, got him to, got his wife taken care of, got Arnie, uh, we're doing CPR, got him to an ambulance, got him to Northwestern. Uh, I went to my hotel room where I was staying to get my cell phone, which was charging, called the Cubs executives, John McDonough, who's still a dear friend. I said, hey, John, I, I need to talk to you. Uh, Arnie's down. He said, why? Did you stick him with the check? I mean, that was one of our running jokes was how cheap Arnie was. And I said, no, John, Arnie's down. He just had a heart attack at uh, Smith & Walensky's restaurant. And John said, you're kidding me. No, come on, stop. And I said, do you hear that siren? And I put the phone up. I said, that's the ambulance on his way to Northwestern. We need to get down here now. I'm, getting my, I'm, getting, I'm running down Michigan Avenue as we speak to join his wife. So uh, we get to the hospital. Um, they're trying to perform heroic measures. Uh, I've got his wife, Arlene, who's hysterical, obviously. And I finally just grabbed her, held on to her and hugged her and said, you don't need to see this. And the doctor came in and said, look, I don't know what to say, but he, he's not showing us anything. And she said, he's, he's gone. And so they stopped and that's, I was there for that. Um, went back to uh, the restaurant with the owner of the restaurant. Uh, we had to get Arnie's car. So we got Arnie's car from parking. We drove Arnie's car to his house in Skokie, Illinois. Uh, sat Shiva with the family for a half hour, 45 minutes, totally wrecked, went back to the restaurant. By now it's 1.30 in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the owner kept the bar open for us. Uh, a couple of his Irish lads poured us a strong shot. We had dinner. I got back to my hotel room about 4 o'clock in the morning for a 1 o'clock game the next day, got to the ballpark, and you, you guys obviously saw the game. Uh, as I said, it was just it was, it was awful, um, tragic. Um, and so unexpected that, uh, I think all of us, if there was a blessing that a, he went quickly and B from a baseball standpoint, it was the last game of the year and we didn't have to linger on it, uh, for an entire, um, entire off season. The hardest part besides the obvious was calling Steve Stone. Uh, I called him and told him and immediately, you know, broke down because we knew how close Steve was to Arnie and had been there for so long. So yeah, certainly a night to change my life. And personally speaking for anyone who doesn't believe in a soul, I saw his leave, and uh, you know I know that wherever Arnie is, hopefully he's uh, watching and, and is celebrating uh, all the great successes that the Cubs have had the last couple of years. And in life with a lot of bad memories, you have some good ones, and, and that 98 yeah. season was certainly fun, and the 97 team for the Cubs was not very good, so 98 in a way was a surprise. How did you attack that on a nightly basis from a broadcast standpoint, that home run chase of Sosa and McGuire? Well, it wasn't a home run chase really until June. McGuire had a big lead. Uh, the big story for the Cubs was Kerry Wood, his 20-strikeout game. The Cubs were relevant in April and May. Oftentimes they were because they could take advantage of Wrigley Field. Um, but they had a good team. Uh, Rod Beck saved 50-some-odd games for them. Uh, Steve Traxel, Kevin Tappany were big double-digit winners for that club. Uh, Henry Rodriguez hit 31 home runs for the 98 Cubs. And they just had a group of veteran guys that knew how to play and just needed to um, gel. And the city of Chicago, as you know, if the Cubs get off to a good start, they really get behind that team and they push until the inevitable June swoon takes place, right? Well, there wasn't a June swoon. They didn't have a winning record, I don't think. But they played pretty well, and Sammy Sosa had 20 home runs to get into this home run chase with Mark McGuire. And that's where I think the national uh, perspective of the Cubs changed. They weren't lovable losers. They were a pretty dangerous team. And with Jeremy Gonzalez, and as I said, Kerry Wood and Sammy hitting home runs every five seconds, uh, it became really easy to broadcast those games because you, you came to the ballpark say, okay, what's Sammy going to do today? Uh, or, hey, Kevin Tappany's on a roll. He's won nine straight decisions. He was a terrific pitcher that season. Uh, Jeremy Gonzalez, another kid from the farm system, God rest his soul, was 
terrific. You had Mark Grace, who was such a gregarious and great spokesman for the team. So from a broadcasting standpoint, 98 was easy. The games pretty much broadcast themselves, but it was punch, counterpunch, punch, counterpunch between Sosa and McGuire each and every day until that final weekend, of course, when Big Mac took the lead and won the title. And the, the whole <coughs> steroid angle of it all and, and the Andrew and Mark McGuire's locker uh, in the broadcast, did the tone change at all? Was that talked about a lot? Because, again, not a, a lot was known about what was being taken at that point in time. But was it something that was talked about on the air? Uh, not with us, uh, because obviously we didn't know what was going on. There wasn't anybody being tested for it. Uh, I think everybody kind of turned a blind eye to it. And if you, all you could do is ask a guy. And if he said, no, you, okay, he says, no, uh, Sammy has maintained. He didn't do anything to my knowledge. Andrew was not illegal, uh, at the time that Mark McGuire was taking it. And perhaps it was naivete on my part, but those two guys weren't the only two guys who were hitting 40 or 50 home runs that year. It was rampant in baseball. And remember a couple of things, and this is in no way excusing what we now know. We were coming off expansion. 98 was an expansion year. Uh, you had had a great deal of, uh, shall we say, pitching thinned out around the major leagues. Uh, there wasn't as much quality pitching. Ballparks were getting smaller. The retro ballpark craze with Camden Yards and the like was starting to take hold. Um, there were a lot of other factors besides performance-enhancing substances, in my view, that were affecting what was happening in baseball. Did it have an effect? Of course it did. But were pitchers taking it too? I guarantee you they were, and we don't know. So from that standpoint, um, you know, we didn't really delve into it. We didn't talk about it because, as I said, there was no proof. There was no testing. The Players Association didn't want to test the players. I'm sure the owners were happy not to have them tested either because people were coming to the ballpark in droves. Guys were hitting balls all over the place, and baseball became cool again. It became relevant. It was on the nightly news every night. Sosa did this. McGuire did that. Looking back, you know, I, I certainly wish I had known more because I might have been able to say something. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, my job was to describe what was happening on the field. It wasn't my job as an investigative journalist to delve into what McGuire or Sosa or uh, Rafael Palmero or Roger Clemens were doing. My job was to say, see ball, hit ball, there it went. And we did that a lot. Yeah, the balls are certainly flying out of the yard. And I think so many people associate you with all of Sammy's home runs. But I believe you called 60 for Fox. Is that right, for McGuire? Uh, Saturday game of the week. And then, of course, you did 61 and 62 as well. Yeah, we were in St. Louis for that. It was great. Uh, growing up a Cardinal fan, being in that ballpark was a tremendous thrill. Um, you know, the, the highlight of that game was not McGuire hitting the home run. But if you recall at that time, there was so much hustle and bustle about who's going to catch this ball, how much is it going to be worth, who's going to buy it which auction house will get it. There was so much greed, I guess, involved with that. And McGuire hit that top spin line drive that barely cleared the fence in St. Louis and ricocheted around and a, and a uh, high school age groundskeeper picked it up and gave it to Mark McGuire. I mean, that was, that was just magical. Um, secondly, watching Jack Buck's reaction. Jack was doing the game for the Cardinals. Uh, he's standing in his red Cardinal Hall of Fame jacket, applauding with tears streaming down his face. I idolized Jack Buck in St. Louis growing up, a uh, longtime friend of our families and was incredibly supportive of me. But to see the raw emotion that he had in this 98 season and how much it meant for baseball and to see people love the game as much as those of us who do it every day love it was really emotional for him and for us as well. I, I also remember that after McGuire hit the home run, I think I said he did it about nine, nine times. And then I think Steve Stone and I shut up and didn't say another word for 15 minutes. 
Um, uh, some would argue that may be the best broadcast I ever did. But the point is, there was nothing we needed to say because the pictures were there. The emotion was there. McGuire hugging Sosa, the handshakes, the fireworks, McGuire picking up his son. Um, it was a it was an incredible moment that for me, at least personally, uh, knowing what I know now has not at all diminished the excitement and the joy and the utter uh, spectacle of what baseball could be again uh, on that hot night in St. Louis at Bush Stadium. And as the play-by-play announcer, just what are your nerves like in a moment like that when you know it is if it is a home run, it is going to tie a record, break a record? How did you have kind of an inner calm during some of those moments before the ball was actually hit on either McGuire's or Sosa's and Chicago's home runs later on? I never script home run calls, never have, never will. Whatever comes out, comes out. Jason Hayward, welcome to the show. Sammy Sosa hits a home run after September 11th. He's got old glory, too. Um, I just describe what I see and whatever comes out, comes out. What I think I'm proudest of is not only that you know, I have a lot of excitement and genuine love of the game that come out in my calls. I think a lot of them stand the test of time. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. Um, but I don't, I, I don't think I've ever really gotten nervous about that because you sort of prepare for it. The main job of the play-by-play announcer is, it, with regards to, to, to big moments, is to expect the unexpected and to be ready to be ready to call that moment. And luckily for those of us who work in front of big crowds every day, you have a wonderful uh, fallback option. And that's the crowd. I mean, Vin Scully talks about that all the time. When Hank Aaron hit his uh, home run to pass Babe Ruth in Atlanta, uh, he describes the home run. He puts his headset down. He goes to the press room, gets a cup of coffee, puts a couple of creamers in, some sugar, stirs the cup of coffee, stands in the back of the booth. Fireworks are going off. Just the roar of the crowd in Atlanta, nothing going on. And then several minutes later, he puts the headset down. And remember, this is on radio, puts the headset back on and says, what a marvelous moment for baseball, a marvelous moment for the South. You know, a, a black man has broken the all-time home run record in Atlanta, Georgia. And, and on and on he goes with this remarkably poignant soliloquy that probably he just had off the top of his head. So the point of it is, I'm never afraid, never nervous about it, always prepared. You just hope that whatever you say and the way you say it matches the moment. And then over time, it'll uh, it'll stand the test of time. And ultimately, the fans uh, and the highlight shows are the folks that determine that. And I've been very, very lucky in that regard, I think. Overall, when it comes to TV play-by-play for baseball, what are the biggest principles for you that makes a good television broadcast from a play-by-play perspective? Yeah, don't talk too much. I mean, that's rule number one. Uh, and it's it's a real, I think it's the most difficult thing to master. And all of us who are doing it have not mastered it. Nobody has. I think we're all guilty of, of forgetting that there is a TV picture there that you do not have to speak in such great detail as you would on radio. Um, you know, Harry Callis of the Phillies, the late, great Harry Callis was terrific. He went, uh, you know, he went nine pitches and didn't say a word one time. I mean, what else can you say? Ball one, ball two, ball three, ball four, whatever it was, you just let the game speak for itself sometimes. And I think we all have this uh, subconscious urge to think that, oh, my God, if I'm not talking, I'm not informing people. That's not necessarily the case. If they're watching and paying attention, uh, they'll see that it's a ball outside. They'll see that the manager's arguing or they'll see it's a two hop ground ball a second. You You don't have to describe all of those things. So that's rule number one for me on TV. Don't talk too much. Uh, that's that's my. Uh, I try to remind myself of that every day, and as you can tell from my answers, I don't really, I don't really abide by that all that well. Uh, but secondly, I think the main thing is uh, you set up your analyst uh, on TV. Um, they are there because they play. They have a great deal more experience on radio. 
the play-by-play guy has to be the star when he's when he's the one handling the play-by-play duties because he's responsible for everything. Uh, on television, you have the analyst who can talk about what it's like to face a 98-mile-an-hour fastball or foul a ball off his shin or what he might have been thinking in that situation or what it's like to smash into the brick wall at Truist Park. I've never done those things. And so our job is to bring the most out of them so that that person can enhance the experience and bring the viewer to a place that they cannot go, which is in the box, on the mound, uh, out in the outfield, or in the clubhouse or dugout. And uh, uh, I think, uh, you know, that's that's uh, that's a pretty easy thing for me to do because with Joe, Tom, and Jeff, they're more than willing to grab the mic and talk, which makes my job a lot easier. It's not an interview. It's a conversation. And how about the storytelling aspect of baseball and, and having that, I guess, the feel of when to tell a story, making sure if you do tell a story, there's a beginning, a middle, and end. the old adage, don't tell a story with two outs unless you're Vince Scully because he'll find a way right. to get it in. Um, <laughs> exactly. How long did it take you to, to build that, that feel of storytelling? Um, I, I think a lot of that depends on the philosophy of your broadcast uh, outlet. Uh, a lot of places don't want you delving off into other stories. They want you to stick strictly <coughs> pardon me, to the game at hand. Uh, that's great if it's a 3-2 game in the bottom of the ninth inning. What if it's 19 to nothing and you're trying to keep people interested in the game and keep people uh, watching so that the advertisers are fulfilled? Because ultimately, if you don't get ratings, uh, advertisers don't spend as much money and we don't all get paid. I think that's something that is that is sometimes not thought about. Uh, I think something else that's not thought about, too, if you're the team on the and you're working for the team that's on the short end of that 19 nothing game, you have two ways or really three ways to do the broadcast. As you said, talk about everything else that's happening in baseball. Because ultimately, I think we're selling the game, not just our game or our team. We're trying to sell the game and make it interesting to uh, people around the sport. You can talk about how bad your team played, getting beat 19 nothing, and a pitcher stunk, you know, four errors. They weren't into the game. They didn't look prepared to play. I don't think that's going to be received too well, right, by your employers who are in partnership with the team. Or you can talk about how well the other team played on that particular day. Hey, boy, you got to give credit to the Phillies. They were just, they were on everything that uh, uh, Mike Fulton had today. John Smoltz, Roger Clemens, Cy Young, they would have probably suffered the same fate today. Boy, you got to tip your cap to the Phillies. Well, that really rankles a lot of people because they think, well, you're not talking about our Braves all the time. Well, no, I'm trying to couch it in a way that takes the heat off the Braves and gives credit to the other team. I will always try to be fair. Uh, because I think that's that's obviously very important. Uh, but storytelling and, and that uh, picking your spots is important. Uh, again, there are some people who don't want you don't want us delving off into, uh, shall we say, entertainment. They just want us to do the game. And if that's the mantra of the people that employ you, no matter how much you like or dislike it, that's ultimately what you have to do. Uh, I love telling stories. I love talking about that stuff. But I just wonder sometimes if it is as relevant to the audience, uh, today's audience, as it would be for me because I'm a baseball fanatic. If people tune in and tune out uh, to games, as you all know, it's not really a nine-inning thing anymore because of the time of games. Uh, Getting those stories in in a timely manner in a way that makes it accessible to everybody I think is sometimes the biggest challenge. And Chip, how has your preparation changed over the years when you're first coming up early days with the Braves and the Cubs, kind of a pre-internet era in terms of a lot of baseball research, but now we have all the research we can handle with the internet and social media as well. So how has your preparation process changed over the years? Yeah, in the old days, it was you couldn't get enough information. Now it's just probably too much. Uh, We get a sheaf of press notes before the game. Uh, I mean, I, I can only imagine what the copy paper bill is for a major league ball club nowadays. A lot of that's also done digitally. Uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't, um, 
I'm not really a super duper numbers guy. I'm more of a stories guy or a facts guy because, again, on TV, they're going to put his average home runs, RBIs, on base percentage and stuff on the screen. So I don't have to say all those things all the time. But the Internet's an incredibly valuable resource. In the old days, you'd grab uh, every newspaper you could find. In Chicago, you'd get the Trib, you get the Sun-Times, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and you read them every day looking for box scores, looking for stories, looking for things that were going on pre-Internet. Now all that stuff's available at the, uh, at the click of a mouse. Uh, for me personally, my preparation's pretty much the same. Uh, for a 7 o'clock game, I'm up at 8 o'clock. And I'm on uh, all the uh, major sports uh, 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 media companies' websites perusing stories. I go to every team's local paper and read the game story. I'll read all the box scores. Uh, I'll make notes and put them on a sheet of paper. I, I just put it on one eight eight and a half by 11 piece of paper so that if we have a bad game, I've got Cliff's notes of things that I can talk about to inform and entertain. Uh, then I go to uh, the game story for our visitor or our opponent and our game stories, read those, read the box scores. That's just, that's just the, the, the background stuff. That takes about two and a half, three hours. Then I you know, get some personal time, exercise, get some sleep, have lunch, go to the ballpark, three o'clock, three 30. First place I go manager's office, coach's office, our clubhouse, visiting clubhouse, visiting players onto the field for batting practice uh, watch some of their guys hit if I can, then head upstairs, and then we have a production meeting. So from pretty much 8 o'clock until midnight when the game's over, I'll get about three, four hours that are mine and mine alone. Most of it is categorizing, cataloging, thinking about things to talk about, and then ultimately the final exam is the game itself, which starts at uh, 6.30 for us with the pregame show. You mentioned earlier that being a television play-by-play broadcaster for baseball is being a traffic cop. And for you, several instances in your career where you're the play-by-play man in a three-man booth, whether that's for a local game or a national telecast, just how do you try to navigate making sure that both analysts can be heard? And I imagine it's a lot tougher to be a traffic cop in those instances. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I think what's great, though, is with Jeff and Tom, look, ultimately the game of baseball is determined by the confrontation between a pitcher and a hitter, right? I mean, that's the essence of the sport. Pitcher tries to get you out. You try to get on base. Uh, When we have Jeff and Tom in the booth or Tom and Joe in the booth for that matter, it's obvious you've got the natural pitcher versus position player type debate about what's happening during the game. And when we get those moments, it's really great because I tee them up and those two just banter about and the game's going on in the background. Uh, we're lucky in that those guys are, as I said, not afraid to talk. You know, a lot of analysts, when they start, understandably so, are very, very cautious because they're broadcasting and some of their friends are still playing and they don't want to make them upset. And the biggest challenge is when you come upstairs and you sit in that booth, either as a play-by-play guy who never played or you're a player who's a former athlete, you have to remember that once you go across that white line, you're not one of those guys downstairs anymore. They are not your teammates. You are there to, to uh, evaluate a performance. And sometimes that can be very, very positive. Sometimes it's not so positive. And if you want any credibility, you have to um, you have to tell it like it is. Um, most of the really good players will tell you, I stunk tonight. It was over four. Better day tomorrow. Okay, move on, right? Um, but navigating that three-man booth is, is hard only when you have one guy that doesn't want to talk or you have to feel like it's an interview. Uh, you know, we're paid to broadcast. We're paid to talk. Uh, we are paid to tell stories. We're paid to uh, elaborate on what is happening on the field. And getting those guys to come out of their shell, I think, early on is the biggest challenge. But luckily, uh, as you know from Jeff and Tom and Paul Bird, certainly, uh, they're not afraid to uh, uh, opine on what they think is going on in a, in a unique and fun, informative and entertaining way. You mentioned earlier in your prep you like to go to the clubhouses, you like to go to the batting cage. What are some things that you're taking away from that 
point in time and bringing up to the booth for a broadcast? Uh, context, something as simple as you go to the manager when you've had uh, three really long games, three uh, wrenching, hard, you know, uh, shall we say, uh, three really toughly fought games. When you go to the manager and say, hey, is anybody unavailable in your bullpen tonight? And the reason you ask that question is if you're in another 3-2 game and your closer's not pitching, everybody in the ballpark's going to be saying, well, why is Joe Schmo not up and pitching the ninth inning? He's the closer of the team. Well, I talked with Brian Snitker before the game. He's concerned about his workload, not because he's pitched a lot in this series, but he's pitched six of the last nine games, and in those six outings, he's thrown 92 pitches. He wants to stay away from him in this game if possible. Now, you don't talk about the before the game. You talk about it as the game gets to the ninth inning. Here's why he's not in the game. Instead of saying, well, I can't believe why this moron didn't put in Joe Smith to close the game and we lose it because Chip Carey has to close. Why the hell did they do that? It's to cover It's to cover the manager and to explain to the audience why some of the moves he's making are made. Something as simple as, why is Joe Smith not in the lineup? Is he hurt? Eh, he's got a little hamstring. We don't want you to say that. Just say I'm giving him a day off, a couple of days off. Obviously, you have to respect that because you don't want to give out proprietary information that could be advantageous to the other team. And that also is important because you build trust. Uh, the manager, I think, has to feel like he can trust his broadcasters with confidential information. And you only get one opportunity to blow that trust. If you do, they'll never tell you anything ever again. Um, and I think it's important, too, that if you say something that's incorrect or unfair um, or, uh, you know, or just you know, stupid, uh, you go down to that clubhouse every day and you, you present yourself so that the players or the manager or the front office or whatever, if they have a question for what you said or how you said it, you're available to them. That's the only uh, fair thing to do. Um, which I take pride in. I'm down there just about every day. Um, so, yeah, th- you, you find little nuggets of information, uh, things that, that you can add to the broadcast to, let, to give context as to how you present what's really happening so the fans know and you don't put your manager or the team or your broadcast in a precarious position because you didn't know. And throughout your career, you've had a lot of big assignments. And with that, that comes criticism, just like anything. And we've asked other broadcasters that have come on this podcast, and and how do you deal with that? I could deal with it a certain way. Roger can deal with it a certain way. How did you deal with any criticism that that came your way? I think early on, like everybody else, you know, you kind of took it personally because they didn't understand or take the time to get to know who you were. Uh, as I said, we work live without a safety net and people who are critiquing you and oftentimes have never done what we do. So you have to take that with a grain of salt. But also there are times where the criticism is very valid. If I make a mistake and don't re- and, and don't correct it because I don't know I did it. Well, that's on me and I should be criticized for that. Uh, ultimately, I would like to think that the goal of criticism is to make you a better broadcaster, to better serve your fans, your network uh, and, and to um represent the teams uh, that you work for. I think a lot of it now has become mean-spirited and personal, and I, I think that's unacceptable on every level. Uh, you can criti- you can critique or criticize or devalue my work as a broadcaster and think that I'm not very good. I can live with that, but when it gets personal, and oftentimes it does for a lot of people, uh, I call that sort of a social media courage because a lot of the folks are going to say things in, a, in, a, in an anonymous format knowing they'll never see you, but if they said it to your face, you'd probably bop them in the nose. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, criticism is important. I, I think you have to take it with a grain of salt. As I said earlier, uh, if the criticism is based upon uh, someone wanting you to be something you're not, uh, you, you toss that aside and say, no, I'm not doing that. Uh, ultimately, the people that hired you hired you for a reason. They, have you, they like your skill set. They like what you bring. And you have to have the courage of your convictions to do that. 
but make no mistake about it. If you make a mistake, um, say so. Nobody's going to shoot you. Say I, so, you know, I did that a couple of times uh, last year. I, said, I beg your pardon. That wasn't right. I misspoke a couple of innings ago. Let me correct that, please. Uh, I apologize. And you move on. People want you to just be accountable. And if you're accountable more often than not, people give you the benefit of the doubt. And criticism always comes with the territory, but as well as for you being part of a broadcasting lineage, having the famous last name Carey, the same could be said for guys like Joe Buck, Tom Brenneman, Kenny Albert, uh, Todd Callis. Uh, you guys were all kind of young and getting your first big breaks around the same time in the 90s and really on the same network with Fox. Just Did you form a friendship with those guys? And I'm sure it was competitive as well, but you're almost in your kind of fraternity of sons of famous announcers that have gone on to be famous announcers in their own right. Not, not in the way you'd think. I mean, I'm, I'm friendly with everybody. I just don't circle in their worlds very often. I see Tommy Brenneman twice a year uh, with the Reds when we play them because we're not in the same division. Uh, I see Joe Buck if he's in town for a national game, uh, Kenny Albert for hockey, you know, or an occasional Fox game. So, yeah, I guess there's sort of a fraternity, as it were, but I certainly don't think of it that way. Uh, I think of them as uh, very, very talented people who, are happen to, who happen to be extremely nice guys, which is really, really refreshing. Uh, competitive? No, not for me. I didn't, you know, I never, um, you know, I never thought of it as a competition between whose son or grandson was doing more games or any of that silliness. Uh, Marty Brenneman, uh, Tommy's dad is, uh, like a second father to me. I have so much respect for him and love that man as a human being and, and, the the confidence and, and, uh, support he gave me in my early days with the Cubs. Um, so no, I mean, we, we, we just happen to have, uh, fathers who did uh, the same thing that we do. Uh, it's no different than a, a kid who's in a third generation law firm or a kid that takes over the family bakery, or a kid that's a third-generation plumber or shipbuilder or what have you. It just so happens that our job happens to be covering sports and is on TV, and hell, who wouldn't want to do that? So with that comes the obvious, hey, it's nepotism, and that's the only reason you got your job. And I found that most of the people that make that argument are, it's just intellectual laziness, um, and it's it's just a cop-out or jealousy, and so I don't pay any attention to it. I know Joe doesn't either, and I know Tommy could care less either. We're established enough that we've done this long enough that people know that we're talented and capable and care, and that we're not riding anybody's coattails. And at the end of the day, whether my name was Kerry or Brenneman or Gabarkowitz, if I didn't do a good job, uh, I wouldn't be sitting behind the microphone I sit behind. So you sort of let that one uh, roll off your uh, off your uh, back like a duck. And speaking of family, just over the years, how have you learned to try and balance the crazy baseball schedule, all the travel with family life and uh, life in the offseason as well? Well, the MVP of our family is my wife. Uh, my wife, Susan, and I have been married 24 years. Um, obviously, she becomes uh, mom and dad when we're gone. Uh, the great thing about our job, and it's a life we've chosen, and she knew this going in, as did I, that uh, we're going to miss birthdays, we're going to miss anniversaries, we're going to miss celebrations, we're going to miss the 4th of July vacations, we're off in Pittsburgh doing a baseball game somewhere. Uh, that's the trade-off that you have to accept. And if you don't have a strong and willing partner who understands that you're not away because you want to be, but because you have to be, yeah, that can lead to a lot of problems. Uh, luckily, we haven't had those. She understands that my first priority is to be home. But I also like to eat. And so this is this is how I provide for my family. And uh, the life we've chosen has provided us with uh, a lifestyle and uh, a way of living that we could never have dreamed of 24 years ago. She understands that I re realize baseball's given our family everything. Uh, baseball is a huge part of my life, but it's about this much of who I am. And so the exit and reentry is tough, uh, but we make it work. Uh, a lot of families... Uh, uh, live like we do where uh, you know you shuttle in you do a game and you go back to your hometown 
Uh, as I said, luckily, I've got a great support system. Her parents, uh, my kids understand it, too. Uh, we've got great friends who pick up the slack in ways that they can when I'm gone because they know, again, it's the job. It's what we've chosen to do. And to complain otherwise is hypocritical. Final one for me, Chip. Overall advice to anyone that wants to do this for a living, just starting out or older in the business? Yeah, get on the air in any capacity or get around it in any capacity. Read everything you can. Be well-versed in the language. Use words effectively. Use words creatively. Uh, as I said, my first job, uh, I was a radio stringer. I was a cable, a cable puller. I was carrying tripods around. Just get around the business and get around the industry because you don't know who's going to take notice of who you are in whatever capacity you're working. And uh, I mean, there are countless stories of, you know, Glenn Geffner, one of the voices of the uh, Florida Marlins, was the PR director in San Diego. He, he wasn't a play-by-play -play guy per se, I don't believe, but here he is doing it because he's a great guy and he's very, very good at what he does. There are a million paths uh, into this industry. Um, so th that would be my advice. Get on the air, write. Uh, work for a radio station, spin records, if they still call them that, uh, work the overnight shift uh, running the board, be around people, do an internship at a TV station, anything you can to get around the industry because you don't know if the cameraman or the audio person or the general manager of that station may end up being the president of CBS Sports one day and you develop a friendship and he remembers you. It's all about connections, it's all about relationships, and it's all about being dedicated to your craft in such a way that people remember how hard and how well you work. And to wrap things up, uh, it comes kind of full circle when we talk about your sons who are also uh, starting to do some broadcasting of their own. Uh, Chris helped me set up this interview with you. Uh, Chris is, of course, at Georgia along with Stefan. Just how proud are you of the steps they've already taken in their career and just uh, what's it like to see maybe the next generation of carries hit the mic? Yeah, we're like a virus, right? Um, I'm really proud of them. Look, uh, they're really talented kids like you. They're, they're driven. They're passionate. They want to do it on their own. They want to do it their way. And uh, they're, they're both going to be very, very successful people. Whether they're broadcasters or not, for me personally, is not important. I want them to be the best whatever it is they want to be that they can. Uh, they're really smart, great kids, good looking. They're passionate. Uh, I have no doubt that like you guys, they'll be extremely successful if this is the route that they want to go. Uh, they are fully aware of all the, 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 the highs and lows of which I've spoken with you about. And I'm confident that they'll be able to withstand those slings and arrows that will ultimately come their way because they're good people first. And, um, you know, like you said, yeah, I was I was very proud to work with my dad and grandfather that one game back in 97 or 98, whenever the heck that was. I can only imagine what my emotions will be like when one of those two guys gets behind a microphone doing a big league game, too. Life will come full circle. Uh, I just hope uh, it's, it's not when I'm 80 years old because God knows they like to eat. I need them off the payroll. But I'm very, very proud of them. I love them dearly. And they're they're way better than I was at uh, at their age. That's for sure. Well, they're certainly off to a good start. We look forward to seeing the progress of their careers. And we just thank you uh, for the past hour with us on Broadcaster Hour. We've earned a lot. And again, for me, I grew up a huge Cub fan watching you every day on WGN. So you're one of my inspirations to get in this business. So thank you for uh, help paving the way and uh, talking so much with us today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. hope you guys both have great careers. And uh, we'll see you at the ballpark soon. Okay, chin up. And uh, thanks for having me. Great questions. Had a lot of fun. Thanks, Chip. Okay, right. guys. Thanks to Chef Carey for joining us on this episode of Broadcaster Hour. Back with you next week, Friday at noon Eastern.